This is the last week in our series on redeeming sex and sexuality. Next Sunday, we will dive into Matthew chapter 5. Really excited to be working through Matthew 5 through 7, the passage that we describe as the Sermon on the Mount. There is a portion of that sermon that we will look at today. We've, we've looked at bits and pieces, in fact, of it as we've walked through uh, this, this sex and sexuality series. In particular, we'll see this morning divorce and remarriage, as it's touched on in Matthew chapter 5. We have all been impacted in, in some way by divorce. You may have been divorced or been a child affected by parents' divorce, or you have had friends or family who have gone through divorce. It is always heartbreaking, always painful, a couple that looked into each other's eyes and vowed to love, honor, and cherish until separated by death now, seeming to become adversaries or mutually agreeing that the marriage is over, or there is a, a spouse who has been abandoned by the other, and there's fallout, and there's hurt, and there's often casting of blame and, and recrimination and legal proceedings and all of the separation of his and hers and even custody of children. This morning, we're going to go back briefly to the foundation point of, of marriage. We've done this repeatedly throughout the series because that's the, that's the starting block. That's where we need to be. And it's crucial that we remember God's design for marriage. And then we're going to talk about divorce, what God's word says about it. What is God's view of divorce? Does he ever allow divorce? And finally, what happens after divorce? Is remarriage possible for those who have been divorced? I want to suggest to you that you will not have a right view of divorce if you start with a wrong view of marriage. The, the fundamental place we've got to begin is with what God's word says about his design for marriage. Just over a year ago, U.S. News did an online piece called Nine Reasons You Should Get Married. I know, this is just what you've been waiting for, is, is the, the nuggets of wisdom on marital wisdom from U.S. News on why you should get married. I'll just read the first three that were on their list. I don't know that they necessarily ranked these, but these are the first three that they gave. Get married because it's cheaper since you share living expenses. Uh, get married because it's better for the economy because married couples tend to earn more than other types of families. Uh, the third in their list was, according to U.S. News, married couples are good for neighborhoods because they're more likely to buy a home and invest in it. If those, I would suggest to you, if those are top reasons for why you should get married, then we should not be surprised at the number of divorces. Because after all, when you go through some of the struggles and marriage gets tough and it does not provide all of the benefits that you expected, all of those good things that you were told would come with it, then immediately you go back to this sort of list of pros and cons and work it through and say, this isn't worth it. This is not turning out the way I thought. This isn't meeting all of those great expectations and so therefore divorce seems just a good an option. The Creator's design for marriage, as we've seen several times in this series, is spelled out in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, in Ephesians 5, the descriptions of, of marriage. It is that God has created man and woman, both in his image, designed with differences that are, are complementary, that are clear and obvious, that distinguish them, but are also meant to complement one another. And so he designs the man and the woman for this complementary one flesh relationship that is for companionship, for procreation, for intimacy, for serving one another, and ultimately, as Ephesians 5 reminds us, for glorifying God by testifying 
to Christ and his church by giving a living witness, living example of Christ and his church. It's all a unique one flesh bond brought together in a covenant. So Matthew 2, uh, Genesis 2, 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Malachi 2.14, we read this verse last week, God judging the man who treats his wife treacherously, who betrays her, trust in him. God said, I am a witness between you and her. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. So the means by which you become a husband and wife is the exchange of vows. It is the, the stating of promises. It is to say that whether you are Sick or well, whether our circumstances are good or bad, whatever the situation, with God's help, I will choose to love and honor and cherish you until death do us part. I will strive to, to follow God's design and do what he has called me to do in marriage with my whole being. Jesus reaffirmed this in Matthew 19. It's where we're going to spend some of our time this morning. So if you want to scroll there, turn there, Matthew 19. He's in this conversation. We've been here before on, on different topics on this series, but he's been in this conversation with the Jewish religious leaders. They want to publicly sort of put Jesus in the middle of a dispute. There's a raging dispute in Jewish culture at this point in time, and it's over the topic of divorce, and they want Jesus to choose a side in this. And so verse 3 Matthew 19, Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The, the underlying mentality here is, hey, Rabbi from Galilee, you who seems to have all of the answers to all of the questions, sort this one out for us because we're divided on this one. There's a majority view and a minority view. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? And I would submit to you that Jesus' answer proves the very point that you will not have a right understanding of divorce until you rightly understand marriage. Because that's what he does first, is he goes back to say, you thought about marriage and what God's designed? Have you read what, what the Word says about marriage? So Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see what Jesus is doing here. Why would you ask this question? If you had read what the word says right from the very beginning, you wouldn't come to me and say, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Because you would understand what it is that God designed. If you had read and believed what he established, which is one man, one woman in this unique one flesh bond by covenant that is not to be separated by man, you, you wouldn't ask this. You would cherish marriage. You would strive earnestly to, to persevere with it, to preserve it, because that's the purpose of the one that you call God. Now, the, the Pharisees would have argued that their question was at least loosely rooted in Scripture. They would go back to the Old Testament law, to the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and they would point to the, the language in Deuteronomy 24.1, which describes a situation in which a man writes a certificate of divorce and sends away his wife because it says she no longer finds favor in his eyes and he has found some indecency in her, and so he writes this certificate of divorce. And this is this is the prevailing mentality throughout biblical times is that the man for 
simply not finding favor in his eyes, sends her away. He divorces her. And so it's very much this easy sort of divorce philosophy that the Pharisees are coming from. And most of the Pharisees would have taken that language to sanction the idea that God permitted divorce for any reason, that, that God allowed a man to send away his wife. There was also a a minority view amongst the Pharisees and amongst Jewish leaders that said, no, this is not right. The only violation that can permit divorce is where there is adultery. This is where the Pharisees want Jesus to pick a side. We want to know where you stand on this and what you approve of. And so Jesus first says, you haven't paid attention to God's design. You, you should go back there for starters and see what it is God has said. But then he presses further on this issue of of. Deuteronomy 24, look at what they say, verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? This language should sort of be reminiscent of, of Genesis 3 and the serpent, sort of just twisting God's word enough to try to accomplish an agenda when they come back with this. Moses commanded this. No, he didn't. There, there was not a command. They've already taken God's truth and distorted it. Moses simply is describing in Deuteronomy 24 a circumstance in which a man does this. There is no, there's no command given at this point. And so verse 8 is when Jesus responds. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus says, Moses did not command divorce. He allowed it as a concession to man's sin. God's creation design still stands, but because of man's sin, even marriage is now corrupted by the fall. And so by wrongly claiming that Moses commanded divorce, the Pharisees are looking to somehow put God's seal of approval on, on their easy divorce point of view. And Jesus says, no, you've got it wrong. Divorce is always an evidence of sin. It is either sin on the part of both people or the part of one, where at least one heart here is resistant to God's truth. When he speaks of hardness of heart, it is a, it is a coldness to the truth of God. And so he's pointing out that in all divorce, there is at least one party that has become hard to God's truth and is sinning against him in this way and is ending the marriage. But then he adds this, verse 9. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That, that language, um, except for immorality, we'll come back to. And also the idea of, he says, and I say to you, will ring in Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 7 when we get to that. And, and Paul says, I say this, not I, but the Lord, or I, but not the Lord. It's, it's because of this language here that Jesus uses, and I say to you. But let, we'll come back to that. The point is, I, I think we can tie a knot on, on Jesus' statement on divorce here when he says, clearly, this is not what you are to do. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Not only, he says to the Pharisees, have you betrayed God's design for marriage, but by doing this with divorce and then going and marrying another, you are committing adultery. Either you are committing adultery, or as we'll see in Matthew 5, you are causing your spouse to commit adultery by, by sending her away in this manner. They were making things worse. Back in verses 4 through 6 of Matthew 19, Jesus said, God's design in creation is the standard. Therefore, divorcing one's spouse because you are no longer happy or you no longer feel love 
or your spouse has turned out to be a, a disappointment to you, it's not what you expected in some way, is doing what verse 6 condemns. It is separating what God has joined together. It is making light of, of marriage, of what God's design is. Marriage is hard. It takes work. Every marriage has conflict. There are no marriages that, that started off from the get-go with perfect communication. Husband and wife just on the same page and in full agreement, and they've just been in that mode ever since. All of you married couples, there's a slight smile on your face at this moment because you all feel the same way and know that that's, that's not the reality. There is blame shifting, there is excuse making, there is prioritizing of things and personalities, and, and most obvious of all, there is the fact that there are two sinners who are being brought into the most intimate of human relationships to, to, to rub against each other and all of the things that irritate one another and all the things that we do, all of that comes into marriage. And so we desperately need God's grace because problems are inevitable. I've, I've sat with count, couples who encountered significant points of conflict or misunderstanding from the very start, from the, the beginning of the honeymoon, and that can set the tone for conflicts that, that push the marriage to the breaking point or that force the couple to, to come to that place of, of acknowledging that I am a, I'm a sinner and I humbly acknowledge my sin and I need to work at this by God's grace. I need to persist in this because this is what God has designed. This is what I have vowed to, to do and, and to put the lordship of Christ over that marriage and learn to graciously and sacrificially love each other. Sadly, there are also those cases where one is willing to do that. One wants to persist in that. One wants to be sacrificial and the other is not. And it becomes this long, difficult struggle. But we are... We are not given the, the sort of easy out that the Pharisees had practiced. They, this isn't working. This isn't what I bargained for. Therefore, I'm done. Instead, Jesus makes it very clear that we are called to lean on our Savior for strength and grace, to remain and to love and to serve. The fact that what Jesus said here is a hard teaching is evidenced for us by the disciples' response to this. They are listening as Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. And verse 10, the disciples said to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That is as honest a glimpse into the heart of man as you get just about anywhere. They have heard what Jesus has said. They have realized that it is so radical. It is calling for a, a permanence to marriage that is something they are so not used to that their response to Jesus is, huh, Maybe we should think twice about marriage. Maybe it's not just you can do it and get out of it and it doesn't really matter and there's no ramifications. Instead, I need to think about this. They were seeing marriage no longer as a man-made institution with all of man's loopholes, but as God's design for a one flesh bond entered into by covenant. All right, let's go back then to verse nine and this idea of accept for immorality. Jesus uses similar language to this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 32, where he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So he's largely saying the same thing, that, that you should not 
divorce, because if you do, then you are you're sending out your wife, and for her to marry at that point, if she's been divorced illegitimately because you've just sent her away because she burnt the food cooking dinner, then, then you are causing her to commit adultery, and if you are remarrying, you are committing adultery, except, he says, on the ground of sexual immorality. Jesus permitted divorce for sexual immorality, and fundamentally, that's because sexual sin violates the covenant. It, it is a direct assault on the one flesh bond that is unique to marriage. Sexual immorality elevates my fleshly desires over the bond in which God has placed me, the covenant in which God has, has placed me now. We, we've talked before about this Greek word porneia, which is the one that he uses here. It's translated sexual immorality. It would have included adultery, but not have been limited to adultery. In fact, that's clear both here in, in Matthew 5.32 and, and again in Matthew 19.9 because Jesus not only uses porneia when he speaks of sexual immorality, but he also uses the specific Greek word for adultery, morkuo. And he says that if you have porneia, then you force the, the one to commit morkuo, the, uh, adultery. The, the point I, I just want to make is there's a distinction here in, in terminology and there's something that means we need to think about. There's some implications of that. If you divorce for a reason other than porneia, you commit moikuo by marrying another. If Jesus meant to say that divorce was permitted only when a spouse had intercourse with someone other than his or her spouse, he would have used that word for adultery. He would have made that very clear, but he did not. He used a word that throughout the New Testament broadly describes sexual sin that which goes on outside of God's design for marriage. Now, there are arguments that, that try to narrow the meaning of porneia to either, well, this applies only to the betrothal period, so think Joseph and Mary, that, that it's talking about happening during that specific time, and so thus we, we see Joseph wanting to, to put Mary away until he is faced by the angel, or there's an argument that it's speaking of a, a very narrow kind of uh, incest, a form of incest, the problem I would say with that is the context here doesn't give us any clues that Jesus had any unusual or narrow meaning in mind. Yes, he's speaking to a largely Jewish audience, but again, within the context, he's not saying anything that would have narrowed that meaning, so there's simply no good reason to take porneia and now restrict its meaning. If we do that, we're in trouble in other places in the New Testament. If we start saying, well, porneia means this here and this here, but generally it means this in other places, unless the context indicates otherwise. It takes its normal meaning, just as it does throughout the New Testament. That is, it is broadly describing sexual activity that is outside what God has prescribed. So that means a, a spouse who is sexually unfaithful is doing grave harm to the covenant, enough that the innocent spouse is betrayed and is no longer bound to that covenant. Please hear me on this. That does not rule out the possibility of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. Again, just as with Moses, this is not a command this is a permission. I have seen an innocent spouse who remained in a marriage and worked hard in that marriage with someone who had confessed to multiple counts of adultery with, with multiple other partners. 
There are major trust, trust issues. There is massive hurt that goes on in that. There is a great deal of time that must pass in order to, to build any resemblance of, of trust, at least on a, a horizontal plane and, and rebuilding and repairing. But the point is that divorce is allowed. It is not commanded. Flip side, though, is this, this is a warning to take seriously. If you are married and you are using porn, or if you are married and you are sexually involved with someone else but, but short of intercourse, or if you are married but your mind is given over to lustful fantasies of sexual involvement with someone else, or if you are trading sexually charged texts with someone other than your spouse, you are actively and callously breaking the marital covenant. You are betraying your spouse and what God has designed. It's as if you are adding other flesh to the one flesh bond that scripture describes. And you should not be under any illusion that your spouse is just expected to tolerate your sexual sin because it's not technically adultery. Uh, there is a difference in magnitude, obviously, and consequences between the act of physical adultery and the use of porn or a lustful gaze at someone, but porn and lust are still sexual sin. We see that in the very context of Matthew 5. We, we've looked at Matthew 5.32, but in the very preceding section to that, Jesus is teaching about lust, what Pastor Stewart talked about about a month ago when we were on this topic, and that's where he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say to you, everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When lust or, or porn become persistent patterns, they expose a heart that is given over to sexual sin and the betrayal of the marriage covenant, and that can lead to divorce. Husbands and wives, you must take, we must take our vows seriously and guard them. God has the highest regard for sexual faithfulness as an expression of our one flesh union, and we should not mock God by sinning against one who has been made in his image by mocking that covenant of marriage. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. God permits divorce in cases of sexual immorality, and there seems to be one other allowance, and that is when a spouse is deserted by an unbeliever in particular. It says here in 1 Corinthians 7, we've been in this chapter earlier. We saw God's design for singleness, and now it's speaking about divorce starting in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Letter written to professing believers, right? This is 1 Corinthians, so it's written to the church at Corinth, and so this is to believers in Jesus Christ. Paul very much reiterating what, what Jesus had said, and that's why, in fact, he says, not I but the Lord. I'm, I'm just saying to you what what the Lord has already said. And he speaks on the permanence of marriage. In the first century, when a divorce was most typically initiated by a man, he wrote her a certificate of divorce and he sent her away. When it was the woman that on more rare occasions initiated divorce, she's just simply separated. She left and he's, he's dealing with both sides here and the command is don't do that. Do not end your marriage. Do not separate, do not Divorce as believers in Jesus Christ uphold God's design, as, as Jesus said. However, here again is a concession. 
that also recognizes man's sinfulness and his capacity for breaking covenants. That's why Paul adds here, if divorce does happen, then it should not be an occasion for remarriage. If you end your marriage by divorce, you do not have God's blessing to marry someone else. Again, there's an exception. We'll come to it in just a moment. But this is instruction. At this point, speaking to believers in a marriage that is to believers, and it is speaking to them clearly about the permanence of marriage. In the next paragraph, then he addresses the believer who's married to an unbeliever. So verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. The I, not the Lord part is, does not mean this is not God's word. This is scripture. This is Holy Scripture given to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's simply Paul pointing out that I know I'm quoting what, he, what Jesus said in Matthew in the first instance, I'm not specifically quoting him here. He did not speak on this particular issue. But what he's saying is, is that, that this is, there is a bond here. But now I'm talking to believers who are married to unbelievers. The key takeaway is if you are married to an unbeliever, you may not divorce simply on the grounds of spiritual incompatibility. Let's just preface this by saying scripture urges you commands you not to marry someone who is not trusting in Jesus Christ as savior if you are a believer in Jesus Christ the principle of 2 Corinthians 6:14 is to not bind yourself together in an intimate relationship with someone where that someone has sway over the direction of your life when that person like Oxen in a yoke has the ability to pull you in, in, in the same direction as they are going. He's saying you don't do that. You don't join yourself into that kind of situation with someone who is not trusting in Jesus Christ. That's that idea of being unequally yoked. If that person will have sway over the direction of your life, which a spouse certainly does, then do not marry an unbeliever who is not submitted to the Lord as you are. However, if you married an unbeliever, or came to faith in Christ, but your, your spouse did not. You face challenges, no question about it, that there is a, a, a difficult extra set of challenges that comes to believers who are, are married to unbelievers, particularly to believing wives who are working through the issues of submission to an unbelieving husband. First Peter 3 speaks a great deal to this, that ultimately we... we believe that God's word would say that you are being equipped by God's grace and God's strength to continue to bear up in that situation and continue to strive to be a godly spouse. Assuming that person consents, it says, to remain married. That Greek word for consents, when it says the unbeliever consents, is not mere sort of grudging approval or, yeah, you know, whatever. Um, it, it is the idea of a a, a being pleased together, soon udikeo, soon meaning together, udikeo meaning the idea of pleased with something. And so it's the, the sense that the unbelieving spouse is pleased to remain in that marriage together. That's their desire, is to remain in that marriage together. And therefore, you as the believer in Jesus Christ are called to remain in that marriage. There is no divorce. But then there's the exception, and this is verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Paul's language in many ways imitates 
that of Jesus, on the whole permanence of marriage and the sin that causes divorce. And so Paul says all of these things, but again, as Jesus did, with an exception. Although a believer is not to leave an unbeliever, there is the possibility that an unbeliever may choose to break the covenant and leave the marriage. No doubt, it it happened in the early church just as it does today. God's saving work in a person's life begins to transform them. It transforms their desires and and their character. And and at times that will become offensive to an unbeliever. It will become something that the unbeliever wants no part of. There are priorities and and, and desires in the believer's heart that the unbeliever is not at all interested in. And the behavior becomes unacceptable if the unbeliever ceases to consent to the marriage What the believer is told here is not to resist the unbeliever leaving. It literally says, if the unbelieving one separates, let him or her separate. Don't don't continue to cling as if it all depends on you and you're not letting go. So uh, just a quick aside, what happens if you are abandoned by a spouse who professes to be a believer, who professes to believe in Jesus Christ. That's that's where the importance of Matthew 18 and and church discipline come into play. There's a process in Matthew 18 by which the community of believers is to come alongside and and, and to uh, listen to everyone involved and and ultimately is forced to the conclusion that if, if one who professes to be a believer is simply leaving a marriage, they are not acting like a believer anymore. They are now acting like an unbeliever, and we are affirming that that's what they are acting as. And so, again, it brings us back to 1 Corinthians 7. Here's the, here's the hard question, I think, that flows from this passage. We know what abandonment is. The unbeliever says, I'm done. I want a divorce. I, I'm, I've had it with this, and that's pretty clear cut. Is there a form of functional abandonment? Let's say a spouse does not leave, does not divorce, but is abusive toward the spouse or children, or rejects companionship or intimacy over long periods of time, or simply goes away for weeks or months and returns occasionally. Uh, There are several different scenarios we could play out, which all come to roughly the same point. One spouse is relying on God's grace to try to uphold the covenant of marriage, to try to to do what God has called, while the other may not be seeming to commit sexual sin, may not be clearly leaving the marriage, but is still tearing at the fabric of the covenant and is violating it and is making a, a one flesh bond almost impossible to maintain. Can that go on for a sustained period of time? These are hard answers, and and, and what I would say to you first is let me suggest that our go-to response should not start with, are there grounds for divorce? The, The aim of the body of Christ should always be to Ensure that the the spouse or the family that's being victimized by one's behavior is first protected and provided for. Keep in mind some of the legal things we, we talked about even last Sunday. But let's assume that the next step then is to see if there is any way to preserve the marriage. Is there any way for the, the body of Christ to come alongside and bring hope and healing? What kind of steps can the church take to confront and to counsel the one who is sinning, the one who is carrying on in this way that is violating the covenant? Is there any way to encourage the one who is weak and weary and and to walk alongside and to try to help save the marriage? If it seems that we are seeing sort of a functional abandonment of the marriage by one spouse, we need to move with patience and 
prayer and, and seeking of wisdom, the first goal always is to glorify God. How do we uphold God's design in any way possible in this and encourage especially the one who is seeking to walk with Christ in that, that we would uphold God's sacred design. But that does not mean simply then looking the other way at the one who is making a mockery of what God has joined together. In the Old Testament law in in Exodus 21.10, it was clear that a man who took a wife had certain basic requirements to meet, including providing for her and being intimate with her. And and it even describes in Exodus 21.10 that to refuse to do those things gave her permission to leave and divorce. So it's not a stretch to recognize that there are men and women who become like plagues in their marriages, whose mind is selfishly elevated above everything else and certainly above their spouse and over the vows of marriage. Might there be a form of functional abandonment. It's certainly possible, but it is an area where the elders of a local body need to be actively engaged and pleading with God for great wisdom. It's one last area to consider. Seems to be alluded to here in in 1 Corinthians 7.15 when it speaks of the believing spouse not being enslaved. This is the question of remarriage. Can someone remarry who has been divorced because their spouse abandoned the marriage or because their spouse committed sexual sin or can a person remarry who was divorced before coming to faith in Christ, before he or she could be held to what we would describe as a biblical standard for believers? Can that person remarry? The elder team here at Grace would say yes, understanding that there are varying arguments on this issue. We would uh, give you three brief arguments I'll give you for that position. The first one is, if you go back to the Old Testament law, A married person who was guilty of sexual sin was punished by the death penalty. People often pause at that point and they sort of chuckle that we would go back to that and the the stoning of the person who committed adultery, but the reality is that was a, a permanent end to the marriage. The punishment also set free the innocent party and the assumption then was that the innocent party was then free to remarry by the punishment that was enacted against the adulterer. Secondly, there's the teaching of Jesus. We read it in Matthew 5 and 19. Jesus confronts this easy divorce culture and makes it clear that where there is an illegitimate divorce, there should not be remarriage. Conversely, if the divorce is allowed because of the spouse's sexual sin, as he's talking about in Matthew, there is no corresponding prohibition on remarriage. That's because the marriage covenant and the one flesh bond was broken by that sexual sin. Just as the death of the adulterer in the Old Testament severed the marriage covenant, so too then is the divorce allowed in Matthew, and that ends the marriage. They are not still married in God's eyes. The innocent spouse is then free to remarry. It's worth noting the culture of the first century, both Greek culture and Jewish culture, uniformly agreed, they they may have gotten divorce wrong as to where divorce was allowed, but they uniformly agreed that where there was divorce, remarriage was part of that, that you were fully allowed to remarry. There was no dividing the two up and distinguishing between divorce and remarriage. To be lawfully divorced was to have the right to remarry. Even Jewish divorce certificates said that. So if Jesus meant to allow divorce in one circumstance but not allow remarriage, I think we would expect that he would ultimately be very clear about permitting one and forbidding the other. 
Finally, there's the remarriage language I think we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 7.15. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. The freedom that verse speaks of is consistent with, again, the widely held view in that day that the divorce also meant the ability to remarry. The, the Jewish divorce certificates that I alluded to a moment ago largely had language that said you are free to marry another. The idea is that you are now released from the covenant of marriage. If an unbelieving spouse abandoned a believer, that believer was not bound to that covenant. He or she was then free to remarry. All right, that's a lot of ground that we've covered this morning on divorce and remarriage. And a couple of things, just in, in closing. I, I hope, one, that you have a deeper appreciation for God's design for marriage and his determination to protect it as unique, as the, the, the most significant of human relationships. Marriage is God's design for our good and for his glory. It is a blessing for companionship and for intimacy and for procreation and for serving one another and ultimately for giving the world a picture of Jesus Christ and the body of Christ. But divorce, like the sexual sin we've talked about in this series, is also not a unique, unpardonable sin. And church I grew up in, Way back in the dark ages of the 70s or the so, uh, people who were in a divorce, regardless of culpability or circumstances, seemed to wear a, a scarlet letter D that simply branded them for life. You are a divorcee, and that's what you are, and you'll always be sort of on the outside of the circle. That should not be. We should uphold the sanctity of marriage. We should contend for the sanctity of marriage. We should plead with struggling couples and walk with them and help them to rely on God's grace and strive for obedience. And when there is divorce, we should apply biblical wisdom. We should take the, the very scriptures we've talked about this morning and confront those who violate the one flesh bond and come alongside those who have been abandoned and stand with them and encourage them and counsel them and give them comfort. Let me say this. If you've been divorced, maybe illegitimately, and remarried, the good news of the gospel is that there is forgiveness and grace in Christ for repentant sinners. God is not calling you now to divorce again to fix whatever you've done in the past. His grace is not a license for sin, but it is a consolation for sinners. There is, there is hope in the grace of God. And as a church, we should hold a high view of marriage as God designed it, we should pray for families, pray earnestly that God would guard the families in our bodies, in, in our body here, in their marriages. We should hold an equally high view of the fact that we are sinners who desperately need God's help and God's grace. Because by nature, we are covenant breakers. We, we break promises as a matter of who we are as, as sinners. We fail to love others as we should. And those of us who are married and who have never felt firsthand the pain of divorce know that God deserves all the praise for his good work in our lives. We know what our spouse has put up with in us. Single parents, abandoned spouses, we want to love you. We want to love you in the way that Christ loves you. To those who have betrayed vows, we want to call you to repent and to turn 
to Christ. We want to ultimately, as Paul even speaks of in 1 Corinthians 7, hold out this peace that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that is our ultimate hope. In his sweet and holy ways, he has designed for us a gracious path forward if we will walk in it by his grace. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you as we have walked through this series, we have encountered areas that have challenged us on different levels. Areas that as believers we have perhaps been tested by, tempted by. Lord, we have been seeing in your word a, a holy standard that is your design. We thank you. Thank you for your creation of man and woman in your image. Thank you for the the sweet drawing together of the man and the woman, that they would leave and cleave together as one flesh. Thank you that the sustaining power for the permanence of marriage is your grace. Lord, I pray for the marriages represented by families of Grace Bible Church. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling even now, who maybe even in recent days have have contemplated somehow severing the marriage. Lord, we plead with you that you would give strength to those marriages, that you would give hope and healing, that you would point the way to reconciliation, to, to addressing conflict through repentance and confession, that your truth would, would overpower the, the desires of the flesh. Lord, I pray for those who have been impacted by divorce and for whom a a sermon like this might feel like picking at an old scab. Lord, thank you for the grace that is found in Christ. Thank you for the hope and forgiveness of the cross. Thank you that you pardon our sin. Those who have been divorced, those who have violated their own marriage vows, those who have engaged in sexual sin that has threatened those vows. Lord, thank you that by your grace there is repentance. There is acknowledging of our sin and running to you for forgiveness. Lord, help us, help us never to be a people that would adopt the sort of mindset of the Pharisees that would cheapen your design, that would treat marriage as disposable, Cause us to contend for it. Cause us, those who are married here, to to be earnest in their desire to seek the help of the Spirit and the body and the Word, to live out their roles in marriage in ways that honor you. Pray for our single folks who are contemplating marriage. Lord, that you would draw them to a relationship that would be committed first and foremost to the glorifying of your greatness to seeing Christ as the focal point of that relationship. Lord, thank you that the ultimate hope and encouragement for any here this morning who are struggling with sin, with sinful desires, sinful temptations, who, who maybe are not even certain of what hope they have in Christ, for them there is the beauty of the gospel.
There is what we cling to. The fact that Jesus Christ came and took our sin on himself, bore it on the cross to suffer the wrath, that you poured out for it, and that he rose again to defeat sin and death, and that there is eternal life and peace and forgiveness for all who will turn from their sin and run to Jesus. Thank you for that hope that we have in Christ. Father, may we as your body of believers live out marriages that give a glorious picture of what Christ and the church looks like, albeit imperfectly as frail sinners. We pray that our marriages would give people in some glimpse an amazing look at the work of Jesus Christ and the praise and glory he deserves. It's in his name we pray. Amen.